Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. This is Haggai 1, 2 through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. The word of the Lord. All right. So something perhaps that you need to know about your pastor's personality um, is he has a deep affection for the Far Side cartoons. I uh, don't know. Maybe they 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 might be a bit old at this point. They haven't been uh, in the newspaper for a long time. But they were a single panel. A uh, single picture by uh, the cartoonist Gary Larson. These funny-looking people with these bizarre situations. And it was just a single caption or a single line. And uh, often from a very skewed perspective, which I have always enjoyed. And, and I laugh very hard when I sit down and read Far Side cartoons. And as I was preparing this sermon this morning, a Far Side cartoon came to mind. Actually, let me take that back. I prepared the sermon before this morning. We're, we're, we, we are more than that. But this morning, a Far Side cartoon came to mind that I think uh, is quite relevant. It's a picture of a desert island. And there's this castaway man who has been stranded there. He's alone. You can see the whole island. There's no one else. There's just one palm tree and a little sandy beach. And he has been there a while, his clothes are tatters, he's, he's gaunt and thin, thin as you can be in a Far Side cartoon. And he has fallen upon incredible luck, incredible good fortune. Upon this little island has washed up a magic lamp. You know, you rub the lamp, the genie comes out, there are three wishes that you get with the genie. And so we see this picture, this genie standing waiting for the man, and the man is, is, is scratching his gruff little beard as he's thinking. And the caption is this. Well, let's see. I have rhythm. I have music. Really, who could ask for anything more? 
So he's here on a desert island, three wishes. He's used the first one for rhythm, the second one for music. He's got one wish left, and he can't even think what he might use it for. Maybe a boat. Maybe, maybe something to get him off the island. But I think, as I, as I ponder that cartoon, that it is a perfect picture of a condition that I think afflicts many of us, and that is complacency. This man on this island shows us how dull and blind we can become when we are satisfied with ourselves. We can lose sight of the thing that we need most because we have become so used to and so comfortable with the way things are. Complacency is the very condition of Haggai's audience. If you recall from last week, we see that Haggai is speaking to what is called the uh, restoration period of Israel's history. They have been a nation. They have had the, the monarchy of David. They have had glorious days in their past, but they have fallen into increasing sin and idolatry to the extent that God's covenant curse of putting them in exile has happened in the generation before. In 587 B.C., uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar has come and taken all of the people of Judah, or most of the people of Judah, and exiled them to the land of Babylon. And they have been living there in a foreign land without the temple, with their homeland destroyed. And then, in God's wonderful grace and providence and in fulfillment of his uh, prophecies, he brings up the Persian king Cyrus in 538. And On the lips of Cyrus, he places this decree that everybody who wishes to go home from Babylon back to Jerusalem are allowed to, and that he is asking them to rebuild the temple so that there can be prayers made for him to the one true God. And so the people come back in 538 B.C., and for a moment they begin to work on the temple, but there was opposition and there was difficulty And soon they stopped. And now Haggai has come to them in the year 520. They've been there 18 years, and they haven't really done anything with that temple. They have lived in that land doing what they were doing, and honestly, they even forgot we need to build the temple. What is describing these people is a condition of complacency. Thus Haggai comes to send the word of the Lord to them to attack their complacency and renew them to faithfulness by calling them to rebuild the temple. Now, we can't just look at the book of Haggai as an interesting story because complacency isn't just a problem for the people in Haggai's day. We also read these words from our Lord to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." 
Those are startling words. These are words to a church that is not more than a generation from the resurrection of Jesus. These are words to a church that is still in the apostolic age. This is a church that is receiving correspondence from the apostle John himself. And yet we see that they have been struck with smugness, self-satisfaction, complacency. Both Haggai's congregation and the church of Laodicea had the feeling that they were doing pretty good, given the circumstances. Both required a direct word from the Lord to reveal to them that they are not in the state of the Lord's approval, but of his discipline. They needed a reality check. They needed to face reality that they can no longer rest happily upon who they've been in the past or by being pleased with who they are presently. So let me ask you, have you become self-satisfied with your spiritual condition? Have you become unmotivated for spiritual growth? Have you settled for a faith that is comfortable and unchallenging? We should also ask ourselves as a church, have we fallen into complacency? Are we coming together eager to stir up one another in the faith? Are we connected meaningfully to one another? Are we pursuing to grow this church by doing the work of discipleship and evangelism? Are we burdened for the lost and the unchurched around us? We are studying the book of Haggai because of its message of renewal. And I'm wanting you to get more and more familiar with this image of the tree shoot coming out of the stump because it is to remind us that God's will is for his people to experience renewal. It was God's will for the people in Haggai's day to experience renewal. And it is God's will for his people to be renewed as they come closer to him. And the postcard image reminds us that he can do that from any place. He can do that from any state. But if we want to see renewal, we have to face the same thing that Haggai wanted his people to face, complacency. If we are going to experience renewal, we must throw off and reject complacency. And so as we look at this passage today in detail, we are going to see three measures that God lovingly takes to help us reject our complacency, and to renew our covenant devotion to him. Let's take a look at this passage in detail. And again, if you, uh, you, you can have a handout and follow along. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can also follow right, right from the Bible itself, right from uh, the book of Haggai. So we're going to look at, in this passage, three measures that God lovingly takes to renew our covenant devotion to him. The first thing that we see in this passage that, that God, the first measure he takes to renew our covenant and devotion to him is this. He drains satisfaction from our self-pursuits. 
He drains satisfaction from our self-pursuits. And here we are focusing on verses 2 through 6, which I'm going to go ahead and read again so that they're in your mind. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? while this house lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So the question that we have to have here, is this a reasonable dispute? Do the people have good cause for putting off the work of the temple? We see in this, in this passage very clearly the conditions are hard. I mean, this is a very tough time. Just imagine leaving the land of Babylon, moving hundreds of miles, and replanting yourself in Jerusalem. Everything is falling apart. Nothing is easy. It is hard conditions. We are living under a foreign king and his taxation. We are living with a currency that is constantly facing inflation because these empires are uh, always growing and contracting and the value of money is never the same. And so the conditions are very hard. They are planting crops, but they aren't producing well. The money that they earn just seems to be running out before it should. It's like a, having a bag with holes. There are people barely getting by. Isn't it reasonable then for these people to say, Lord, be patient. It's just not time. Well, the Lord comes back, and I think he shows his loving character and his compassion by not just dropping down upon them a command. He starts by putting a question in front of them, or at least a, a, a probing thought in front of them. He says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. God wants to reason with his people. God wants his people to think. Out of the words, consider your ways, is a God that is showing his desire to have a relationship, his desire to make his commands understandable to us. It is a loving posture. But God wants us to think. He wants us to practice self-examination. And so in this passage, just, just these ver first couple of verses, he wants us to consider three particular areas. The first thing he wants his people to think about is to consider their priorities. When he says, consider your ways, he is saying, consider your priorities. When you say, it is not time, it's been 17 years, 18 years. You say, it is not time. But when you say it is not time, after so much life has passed by, you are admitting that, yes, 
I believe the temple needs to be rebuilt. I believe that is something that we need to do. But it's not the first thing. It's not most important. It's not the highest priority. And so what we have here is the revelation that these people say, God is one of my concerns. I I do care about God. But I don't care about him first. I put his concerns after other concerns. God is not preeminent. The next thing, as we say, consider your ways, is God saying, consider your pursuits. Yeah, God recognizes they are having hard times, but also they have paneled houses. It's hard, it's been difficult, but somehow, some way or another, in those hard times, they've been able to find just a little extra to care for themselves to give themselves just a little luxury, just a little comfort beyond bare subsistence. This is the kind of modern-day example of the people who can't pay rent but have a really nice stereo, you know? Can't, can't afford this thing or that, but they have the latest phone. So there is something in the mind that is making room for a little extra for myself, even in the midst of hard times. So he is saying, consider your pursuits. It's not that they don't have anything. It's that they don't have anything left over. So they don't have anything left over. So what we have here is a people who are saying, yes, God is a part of my life. Yes, God is something that I care about, is a person that I care about. God is someone that I give some thought to, that I give some time to. But I don't give him my first priority, and I don't make him my first pursuit. I want to be known as somebody who knows, believes, has a relationship with God. But at the same time, I want that relationship not to interfere with what I think are priorities and with the pursuits that I want to pursue. The definition of this is nominalism. I will carry high the name I believe. I will carry the name high I go to church. I will carry high the name that, that I am a believer. But I put all of that after, second, later, than first and most. So as we consider the priorities, we consider the pursuits, I believe God here is asking them to consider something even more deeply. He's wanting them to consider your heart. In the Hebrew, the the words that are used here is literally set your heart, or your soul, it's the same word in Hebrew, to your ways. The, the, the Hebrew is set your heart to your ways. What I think God wants us to think about as he contemplates, asks us to uh, examine ourselves is, is it just economic realities that explain what is going on here? Is it just the list of hardships that you are reciting to one another? 
Look carefully at verse 6 again. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Do you see the pattern of the pronouns in that passage? They are pursuing themselves. You, but you. You are uh, um, harvesting, uh, I'm sorry, you, have, you never have enough. Uh, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You, but you. What's being described here is a, is a me loop. All the effort, all the attention, all the work that I am doing is to come back to take care of myself. So I am the object of my pursuit. I am the object of my priority. It is a me loop. And what do we have in this me loop but a constant refrain of unsatisfaction? The pursuits are not satisfying. The pursuits are not producing as much as they should. They have some, but they don't have enough. They are not being fulfilled as they continue to take care of themselves. And so I think we have something here that is beyond just economic realities. It's not just the hardship. It has something to do with the heart. I have had the interesting experience of getting to be in a break room at one of my first jobs, which is at Sam's Club, and getting to just listen to the conversations of people who are living on minimum wage. And they have hard times, and they are constantly having to make decisions. It's a difficult existence. They don't have enough. comes up all the time in the conversations. I have also gotten to be in the break room of a bunch of physicians. You know what they say? They don't have enough. They have more bills than they can pay. They are having to make decisions and they are having to work more hours because the lifestyle that they are pursuing is continually asking for more than they are bringing in. So we have people on minimum wage and we have people on the highest income scale. And they both are coming to a similar refrain. I don't have enough. I need to work more. I need more hours. I need better pay. If that is true, if it's on both sides, then perhaps it is not simply the circumstances that are outside of us. Perhaps it reveals something that is inherent in us, a heart that cannot be satisfied by being made number one. Perhaps there is no truer song to this issue than the Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, which is terrible English. It's a double negative, but I think... What Jager means is he can't get satisfaction. He's not satisfied. And I think most of us probably have had that feeling before. I'm working hard. I'm doing all of this, and I am just not getting out of it what I want. I, I have bought the TV. The TV is beautiful. It's, it's high definition. But now there's 4K. That's like five times the resolution. I am missing out. Without the 4K, we are constantly unsatisfied. God is saying to this people, your heart is not fulfilled by your ways. Why? Because the heart is made for one priority and for one highest 
pursuit. Augustine, the, uh, the great early church father, famously said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Those are deeply true words. We are in a world of high energy, of franticness and restlessness. And so, perhaps Augustine's words need to be applied to us. Are we restless because of our priorities and our pursuits are not located in God? I think of the story in John chapter 4 of the Samaritan woman who Jesus meets at the well. The Samaritan woman is very much descriptive of, of the conditions of feeling like it is just unsatisfying, never enough. Every day she has to get up and go get a, a pitcher full of water. She has to walk across desert land. She has to walk in the heat of the day. And she is living day by day for water that does not satisfy. She is experiencing again and again a way that takes her and doesn't give her enough. And so Jesus, in a very similar way, asks her to consider her ways, to consider what she is living for, what she is pursuing, what she is prioritizing, how she has decided to live life. He offers to her something that will satisfy. He offers to her something that will fulfill her. And as she is dealing with the parchedness of her thirst and the, and the exhaustion of carrying that pitcher, she has ears to hear what Jesus says to her in John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, we pursue water, but it keeps getting more thirsty. The reason is that we have not been made to be satisfied by the me loop. We have not been satisfied by you, but you. We have been made to be satisfied by the living water, by the life that comes from our Creator in whose image that we have been made. And so, the first thing that, that God is doing to peop the people in Haggai's day is draining their satisfaction from their self-pursuits. Perhaps if you are experiencing abiding dissatisfaction, abiding feeling like you're coming up short, like there's never enough, abiding unfulfillment, perhaps that is God calling you to come to him for living water. Perhaps that is him saying your priorities and your pursuits and your heart are set on the wrong ways. Come to me and I will give you the drink that you will never be thirsty from again. Have you tasted that water that satisfies? Have you tasted that life, that relationship, that Savior and Lord that makes your heart full. 
The second measure that God lovingly takes to renew our covenant devotion to him, he promises us the goodness of his presence. He promises us the goodness of his presence. Again, we'll look at verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much. That's enough. That's all I want to say. (laughs) Uh, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Again, self-examination. God is saying, consider your ways for the second time. He is being tender. He is being reasonable. He is trying to bring his people to an awareness through self-reflection and his guidance that they have chosen the wrong ways. So this time he says, consider your ways, but as an introduction to the command, go up and build the house. What Haggai is doing when he repeats, consider your ways, this time after putting them back on focus on the work of rebuilding the temple, is placing two ways in front of his people to evaluate which is better. The first way is the way of pursuing self, and the other way is that of living for God. Haggai reminds us that setting your heart on God takes uh, two aspects. One, it, it means obeying his command. Go up, build the house. Now here's the interesting thing about the command that God gives his people. They were already obeying that command for themselves. They were going up, gathering wood to build and panel their houses. God is saying, go up, gather wood to build my house. So what he is telling these people is, you already have the ability. I'm not asking you to do something that you're not already doing. I'm asking you, will you do it for your Lord? Will you do it for the one who has brought you back to this land? So it is not a question of ability. It is a question of will. It is a question of what does my heart want to do? Does it want to serve God? Does it want to be with God? Does it want to know God's joy in my obedience, or does it only want to take care of its own house and its own pursuits? This text is asking very probing questions. Is your heart set on God? The second aspect of having our heart set on God is enjoying his presence. So for 17 to 18 years, the people have been in the land and they have had this pile of rubble at the center of Jerusalem that was, at one time, the temple, the meeting place between God and man, the nexus of community life, the nexus of worship. And it's rubble, it's rocks. And they have been conducting their business, going about doing their things, running to their house, taking care of all of the different parts of their life, going past this rubble of rocks every day for 18 years. This picture of these ruins and everybody busying themselves with their life, 
is a picture of complacency. There is the house of the Lord in rubble, and they think everything's pretty much as good as it can be right now. We're okay with this status quo. The Lord's house being in ruins communicates loudly that these people do not treasure the Lord's presence. Because that's what the Lord's house represented. God with us. God in our midst. And so for 18 years, these people have been able to walk by these ruins without saying, you know what, today we're going to do it. We're going to work on the house. They have been able to do that. And every day they are communicating again and again, the Lord's presence is not treasured to me. Because here's the reality. These people could have been enjoying the presence of the Lord of hosts, but they were consumed with lesser things. Verse 8 says, build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified. If you build the house, God's presence will be here. God will be glorified. God, God's pleasure will be emanating. That's what they could have. And yet they are choosing. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that nice piece of wood on the headboard. That'll be real pretty. They are taking care of lesser things. And they are revealing how small and light that relationship to God really is. This isn't a small thing. Go back to the book of Revelation chapter 3, which, which we looked at at the beginning. The church of Laodicea, a complacent church. Jesus says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you know what that is saying? This isn't an evangelistic verse like it's often used on on gospel tracts, although I, I won't begrudge anyone who uses it that way. But primarily what it is saying is this church is so satisfied with their lives, so satisfied with their things, so satisfied with their station and condition that they don't even realize that Jesus isn't in their midst. Jesus is on the other side of the door. And they're totally happy, just like that. God, Jesus, is standing outside the door and knocking. Can I come in to my house? Do you have room for me with all of the happiness you have for yourselves? That's a damning statement that a church can become so self-satisfied and so complacent that Jesus is like, I wonder if there's room for me there. I wonder if there's room for my word, for obedience, for discipleship, for evangelism. I wonder if this people has time and interest in my will and my presence. Or are they so complacent that they don't even notice I'm standing at the door knocking? Complacency can take us to the point that we don't even notice the Lord's absence. And I think that is where these excuses 
that the people are using are really exposed. Not time is code for self-idolatry. Not time is code for self-idolatry. Yeah, I want Jesus, I want God, but I'm going to take care of myself first. I will get to God, I will get to my devotion life, I will get to prayer, but first I'm going to take care of Facebook. Those are acts of self-idolatry. When we say we do not have time for the presence of God in our life, we don't have time for his will in our life, we are saying he is definitely second, if there at all. And here is a warning. Hell is full of nominal Christians. Hear these words that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There are people in hell who said in their lives, Lord, Lord, but it was nominal. It was in name only. It was fruitless. There was no priority. There was no commitment. It was an empty confession. The Lord wants to share his presence, his goodness, his glory with his people. It's not because he needs the house. As we remember from our call to worship, God doesn't fit in a house. The whole reason he has called us to build the temple is so that there would be a place where this people could enjoy his fellowship and enjoy true worship. Building the house is just a way of saying, I want these people to be working and living for God's glory. Why? Because I have made your heart. I have fashioned who you are and what you are supposed to be. As you set your heart on your ways, I am the only way that does not lead to dissatisfaction and unfulfillment. I am the way that your heart finds rest and true satisfaction. This is the finding of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question one, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Do you guys? There we go, participation. That we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the bottom line of the Bible The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And those two things are one. When you glorify God, that is what your heart has been most made for. And therefore, that is the deepest experience of joy that you can have. Glorifying God and enjoying him forever. This is a call to true satisfaction. So God is not just draining their satisfaction from their self-pursuits because he wants a a greedy sense of attention. He is draining their satisfaction from self-pursuits so that they can set their ways on what they were made for. He promises them the goodness of his presence, which is the thing that will satisfy them. Build the house and I will be glorified, and I will take pleasure in it. Build the house, and you will experience the joy and the glory of God in your midst. 
And if there's something else you're pursuing, it's inferior because there is nothing more beautiful and satisfying than that. As Paul came to realize, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is somebody who has latched on to the way of true satisfaction and true fulfillment. He would suffer. He would let all of his pursuits, all of his priorities go up in rubbish so that he could have the surpassing worth of Christ. What we are offered is more beautiful than a temple made of rocks. We are given a personal relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Finally, third, he lets us experience life outside of his blessing. We'll deal with this point briefly. Why, he asks again, the Lord continues to push the people to think deeper, more theologically. Why are you experiencing hardship? Why are things not going the way you think? And Haggai is echoing for them their covenant language. When he says in verse 11, I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors, he is echoing for them who have ears to hear the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, which describes the curses that come from disobedience. There God tells the people, it shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds, or the young of your flock, until you have, they have caused you to perish. These two verses echo one another. I should say Haggai echoes Deuteronomy. Their conditions are, not curses, are, are curses, not accidents. The point, the people should recognize from their covenant relationship that they were struggling because they were under discipline. God is using these circumstances to shake them from their complacency, to call them back. He is letting them experience distance from him so that they would want to change their ways and come back. God still disciplines his people. We see that in the church of Laodicea. But we need to remember that God's discipline is for our good. Jesus does it for those whom I love. And so, as we consider Haggai in our own day, we need discernment. We need soul-searching. Is the Lord trying to call us out of complacency? Is the Lord trying to reveal to us self-satisfaction? Seek the Lord and listen, especially in the areas of our comfort and self-satisfaction. Am I supposed to be this comfortable? 
Am I supposed to be this satisfied with my things, with my station in life? We must ask, where are we complacent? Where have I settled for less than your glory in my life? We must ask these questions and listen. So as we move to the end of the sermon, we see that God uses three measures to lovingly call us to renew our devotion to him. He drains satisfaction from our self-pursuits. He promises us the goodness of his presence. And he lets us experience life outside of his blessing. If we want to experience God's renewal, we must reject our complacency. We must not be satisfied until we have had more of him, until we have had all that he has for us. Haggai reminds us that we don't wait until everything is in order to turn our attention to God, to pursue him with all we have. We turn our attention to God and we pursue him and find out that everything else falls in order. We don't wait for it to be right to pursue God. We pursue God and everything else falls into place. Jesus makes that clear. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So let me end with this question. What are you seeking first? What are you pursuing? Consider your ways. Are you ready to be done with lesser things? Let's pray. Father in heaven, our heart is made for you, but at the same time, our heart is very fickle. We find ourselves more interested in diversions and distractions and things that will not last. Oh, Father, I pray that you would just help us to consider our ways, to consider whether we really want to live a life that does not have you as number one, that does not pursue you with all that we have. Father, not because we are living in fear, but because, Father, we do not want to lose out on the greatest joy, which is to be in the presence of you, the infinite and beautiful creator and redeemer who has purchased us by the blood of your Son. Father, I pray that you would give us what Paul was grasped by, the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus that we would be a people who live for more of you, for less of ourselves. Oh, Father, break us from complacency that we might find our rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.